Hi, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making, we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources, so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and then found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. It's a beautiful day in paradise, and I say that for my Canadian friends who haven't been on recently because I found out that it costs them money to listen to our free show. So we got to do, do something about our, uh, about our Canadian connection because it's a fun show and Stand Up and Speak Up today is, today is a special show again for me. I, I had an hour with my mom two weeks ago, which was extraordinary. And the, one of the best things for me about doing this show in this format is when we, sh- when we sh- saw the replay on YouTube, I showed my younger brothers the show with mom, and they sat there with my dad, and it was so much fun to watch their reaction to some of the answers mom gave, because I live around her, and I hear these stories all the time, but my brothers did not hear some of the stories, and that is probably what's going to happen today, because my special guest today is a man I've been researching my entire life, (laughs) and have worked with my entire life. And I bet all of these questions that I have to ask him today, I might know a portion of the answers. So we're going to jump right into it. So Dr. Jack Butts, known as Dad, are you here with me today? Most of me is. <laughs> oh, I can see this is going to be a great show. Okay. Yeah, everything, everything, everything but my mind, that's okay. Okay, well, speak loud, Pop, because I know you got your hearing aids in and you can hear me, but I want everybody to hear you, okay? Okay. All right, all so right. the way I start the show, Dad, and you know this, you've listened to most of all, most all of them, is I yeah. go back to background and, your, okay. and your, your beginnings, and your beginnings started in 1929, so we're going back a long way. Could you yeah, please tell me? Yeah, it was a bad me, time for the world. <laughs> Can you please tell me a little bit about you growing up and your family? Yeah, well, let's see. I think I was an orphan, but I don't remember for sure. Uh, no, I guess I wasn't. I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at a hospital called Women's Philadelphia Women's Hospital, which I think they don't ever have any men there. So you can't go there as a man and have a baby. So it's it's only uh, the women's hospital, and I was born there on September fifteenth, nineteen twenty nine. Never went back to it again. 
Uh, it's on Broad Street, I think, in Philadelphia, if anybody knows Philly. And uh, then we lived in West Philadelphia for the next, uh, until I was in third grade. And then we moved out to the suburbs of Philadelphia. What town was that? Was that Drexel Hill? Upper Darby, Drexel Hill. Drexel Hill is part of Upper Darby. Upper Darby is a suburb of uh, Philadelphia. Okay. And you lived with your mom and dad, and you had a little sister? Tell me about your little sister. Yeah, a little sister, Peg. Uh, I was Jackie, and she was Peggy. And um, she was just a year and a half younger than me. And uh, unfortunately, she just died uh, last month. But she had a tough, tough five or ten years of Alzheimer's, and uh, I haven't had that yet. I'm not going to get it either. Nope, you're not. So let's go back. So we're going to we're going to test you on your Alzheimer's today, Pop. When you were young, what is your favorite memory of you and Peggy? The fact that we never argued. Oh wow. <laughs> No, we never had a fight. Never had a never had a bad word. I don't recall. Uh, she was away a lot. Um, she went away to school, to college when I stayed home, and uh, so we didn't see a lot of each other. She she did. She wasn't into sports, which I was very much into. So I was going most of my spare time. I was going playing games, and she. Uh, she had her dolls to play with, and she loved she loved ice skating. And not that she was a great skater, but she just loved watching it. And uh, I can't I don't remember too much about our younger life because we never saw each other that much. And then when she went away to college, then shortly after that she was married. Uh, we did spend uh, Gwen and I had our honeymoon up at State College, Pennsylvania, which is where. Peggy went to went to work as a school teacher and also as a dental assistant. Okay, well let's go back. Let's go back if you can remember. And I know it's hard because I'm trying to remember even when I was a kid. What was your favorite thing to do when you were little? When you would go on a vacation with your mom and dad when you were little, where would you go? And what was your favorite thing? Yep. Well, we always went down to Ocean City, New Jersey, which is probably about 60 miles from Philadelphia, on the Atlantic Ocean very popular uh, resort, uh, nice beaches, and of course the ocean was there. <clears throat> my my dad loved to fish, so uh, that was the one thing that I did do with him. Although you can, when you're fishing, you're usually just standing here talking to the fish. <laughs> that's, about, that's about all. But uh, I would often go up and down the beach, of course, I love to throw seashells into the ocean, uh, big, big clam shells. Uh, which I guess brought about my love for throwing stuff. Um, I love to throw baseball, any kind of ball or discus or shot put or any, anything that you're supposed to throw. I enjoyed that. And uh, I used to dig, my sister and I, she used to help me. We'd, we'd dig uh, big holes in the sand and pretend they were automobiles. Which is kind of crazy, but uh, put them down about three feet, then climb down into them, and then think you're driving along the beach, and that was that was fun. The fishing, the fishing was fun, but uh, unfortunately, ocean fishing is a little bit boring until you caught a shark. And then, if you caught a shark, it was a little more exciting. And uh, they had other other fish called robins, sea robins, 
They call them sea robins because they chirp. And the phone we caught them. And we caught uh, flounders and other white fish, croakers. They call it croakers. Call them croakers because they croak. And uh, like frogs. And uh, usually the beach was not very crowded, fortunately. Um, I used to go along that same beach later on in life when the war came, 1940s. When we, we were there in the 30s. In the 40s, the war came and messed up the whole beach. The New Jersey's shoreline was noted for sunken ships. The German submarines, before we figured it out, they had a all oh, they had a field day there, sinking ships one after the other, and the sinking ships or sunken ships would give up all their oil, and then the oil would come and just mess up the ocean terribly, mess up the beach. You could hardly walk on the beach because of the tar and the oil and the other stuff. The fun thing about that was uh, that the, the uh, Navy used to send shore patrols along the beach every day. So from even from the time I was a very little kid, I always had a thing about the Navy and the Army. I loved the military. And I'm not sure why at that time, because nobody in the family at that time, this is before the Second World War, uh, nobody in the family had been in the military for a while. And um, I don't know. I just I just loved the military. I had I had a must. I had fifty or a hundred toy soldiers, and this is hard to believe these days. But in, back in those days, they used to buy lead and melt it in special little uh, container that were heated, melt the lead and pour them into molds and make make yourself soldiers, lead soldiers. And uh, they're about maybe two or three inches high. Now I can't imagine anybody allowing their children to play with lead these days. <laughs> they wouldn't. They wouldn't make it till they were twelve. But anyway, um, that was fun and it was inexpensive. And then uh, that's mainly what we did on the beach. There was two hours, too little, too little to play volleyball or any of that kind of stuff. Did you spend much time talking with your, like your dad or your mom? Did they go in the water? I, I don't recall Grandma ever being at the beach, but. No, except for the fishing. Yeah, Dad, Dad would stand. He would stand in the ocean for hours on end, and that's why he liked it because nobody would bother him. My father was a uh, uh, kind of funny in that way, and he was a very uh, singular person. He, he 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 loved to be by himself more than company. Not that he couldn't be sociable. He was a wonderful bridge player because he was an extremely smart man. But he was a chemical engineer, and he just liked to think on his own. In fact, I remember one one time when a, a gentleman came down to the beach to talk to my dad about business. Dad used to come down on weekends from the city. And uh, we get down, and I never saw my father that much in bathing suits. He usually had on khaki pants and an old shirt. But anyway, this guy came down to the beach in a full suit, and I said, "This is weird. I've never seen a guy on the beach in a full suit." Anyway, it turns out this is one of his one of his chemical engineering buddies who turned out to be president of a a very large company, chemical company in Philadelphia. Also, was a trustee at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, which. I didn't know that at the time. I don't think he got me into school there, but that's where I went to school. 
Yep. So, so Grandpa was pretty quiet. What, what is the one thing you think you remember about Grandma and Grandpa's relationship? Well, I know that uh, we, I found a diary when he died. Uh, found a diary that he had made day by day. He was meticulous in his uh, keeping records. In fact, he had a wonderful secretary, Dorothy Erickson, a beautiful blonde. He loved blondes. And she was his secretary, and he would not even give dictation to her. He had to always write out everything that he did by hand, in longhand, and then she could type it. But he would not accept anybody taking any dictation from him. He would he would just write it out himself. And everything he did, I used to love to have him make me drawings of anything, you know, tanks and ships and all the military things. And they were beautifully detailed, very accurate, and that's just the way he was. That's In his business, he was what they called a patent attorney, which meant that he was the man who, if anybody had a patent in the company, of course, he worked for Atlantic Refining Oil, which is one of the largest oil companies in the world. And he worked for them, and any time anybody had a patent, uh, they would bring it to him, and then he would go to Washington, D.C., and research the patent and make sure that it hadn't been done before and all the other stuff you have to do. So everything had to be perfect. There's no opportunities for mistakes. And uh, that's the way he were. And the other fun thing I always remember about Dorothy, his secretary, was that she used to say to me, everybody used to say, well, when your father has says something, make, make sure you listen because it's important. He didn't, he didn't ever talk about nothing, <laughs> so to speak. And so anything, anything he had to say was uh, worth listening to. And that's good. I often regret the fact that I didn't sit down and talk with him more because, uh, of course, he had his first heart attack when uh, he was only 38 years old and uh, died of a heart attack at age 46. And uh, at that time, I was only 19, and they, I, was, I was living at home. But uh, he, he went to work early in the morning, came home late at night, and on the weekends, he would be gone doing his favorite avocation, which was shooting. He was he was a U.S. championship marksman, and we had, we had a ton of guns in the house, and I had my first gun when I was six years old. Some people might... Not like that idea, but uh, in my day, having a gun was very important and still is. And uh, I respect them, and people like me don't go around shooting people. So uh, that's one thing I learned early in life. And um, so I used to enjoy shooting with him, but then he'd take me out. He was uh, what they call the gun, the gun range master at the Atlantic Refining Gun Club. And he used to take me there on Saturday mornings, but talk about boring and hot. We were down in the uh, where all the storage tanks are for oil, these humongous tanks surrounded by big gravel mountains almost around them to in case the, they had a leak in the tanks, they would, they would just stay in that little reservoir. But anyway, they had the, the shooting range right next to them. And uh, it was, you know, you shoot a bunch of shots, then we go out to where the targets were. And uh, when we were done shooting, we would go with a little shovel and dig all the lead 
out of the banks behind the targets. And then we'd use that lead to make more bullets. So we just kind of, it was a cycle. Shoot them, dig them up, melt them down, make more. Shoot them, <laughs> and so forth. So in our basement, we had, uh, it was amazing because he had these connections since he had, he also was uh, in charge of another private shooting range nearby our house. And he had an arrangement whereby he was very close friends with the Army major in Frankfurt Arsenal in Philadelphia, which may still be one of the largest arsenals that the Army has. And this guy became very, very well acquainted with Dad. And he used to give him bullets, you know, extra bullets that they had, and which they had millions of them. And he'd give them tons. And when Dad died, we had, I would say we had approximately... Uh, I'd say 2,000 bullets in our basement. <laughs> he, uh, he he did that, and then you know, the amazing thing, I, when Dad died, uh, we were, he, he didn't have much insurance, and he had had a very good job, but he was only, you know, 46 years old. So he hadn't had time to accumulate a lot. We had a nice house. But anyway, um, his guns were his prized possessions, and I... Unfortunately, I, going to school, it was so expensive that I had to sell. I had to sell practically everything that I had. I sold my stamp collection. I sold all my photographic equipment. I sold uh, uh, half of his guns, which I wish I had never done, because there's one one gun in particular that I sold for probably fifty bucks. I understand it's now worth six thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the guns don't lose their value. Anyway, um, that's what we used to do, and then make make the bullets in the basement of the house, which was kind of fun. So one that's, that's what, one yeah. thing you said at the beginning of that is that you found a diary that yeah. Grandpa wrote oh, yeah. to Grandma. Can you yeah, right. tell me a little bit about yeah, that? I got, I got distracted there. Yeah, the diary was a day-by-day listing of all of the dates that he and Mom had. And he even had little X's and little circles. And the X's would have been, I guess, a kiss, a circle was a hug. And Mom had the most beautiful light blue eyes, which everybody used to always remark about. And his name for her was... uh, those are beautiful little blue eyes, I guess. And uh, is that what it was? I think it was. But anyway, uh, that's what she was known for. And uh, his day, it was funny because he, he would write and he said, oh, oh, Lillums is what he, her name was Lillian. He called her Lillian, Lillums. And he would write in, Lillums gave me a hug today. Great Aww. day. <laughs> and Cynthia has that book now. Okay. She came across it, and she thought it was great, and so I gave it to her. And uh, whenever he gave her a gift of any kind, he would write it down. Or if they had a date, uh, he would write down the date. And it was funny because uh, Grampy was, uh, that is his father, was an MD who had come off the farm back in the old days in Pennsylvania. Came off a Pennsylvania Dutch farm, went to Philadelphia, became a pharmacist, had a drugstore for a year or two, and then decided to go to medical school. So then he went to medical school at Penn, uh, where I had gone and where my dad had gone, and uh, used to make all his own medicines right in his office. 
uh, in the city, which you could never have that happen today. Can you imagine doctors making their own medicines? <laughs> so anyway, that that was uh, that was fun. Also, Dad had a shooting range down in the basement of the house, which happened to be right underneath the waiting room for my his father's office. People used to hear the shooting down the basement, wonder what the heck was going on. <laughs> I could so scare anyway, off yeah. some patients. Uh, I said that could scare off some patients. Yeah, well, if they're sick enough, they wouldn't care. But anyway, it's uh, just one of those crazy things that happened. So Grandpa Butts died um, young, very young, and you were 19. Aunt Peg was probably about 17. Uh, how did Grandma survive after that? Did you help her out a lot, or was she working? Yeah, she uh, she was working in a department store about five miles away, which was the same place that I ended up working when I was in college. And also your mom ended up working there, too, called Lit Brothers, which was a department store, like, like a Macy's, a large department store. And so she worked there. I, I often marvel as I think back about her, because I lived with her until I was completely through school. And um, I lived with her, and I just don't know how she ever managed to do what she did, because she was working. Uh, then later on, she had to take care of my father. And then when he died, he had, in those days, I think they had $10,000 worth of insurance, which at that time was considered a bunch. That was in 1950. Anyway, and then um, her mother came to live with us. So there was her mother, and then my grandfather had two sisters who lived with him in the, in the city in his office, uh, or his house, but his office. And uh, he had two sisters who lived there who didn't do anything but sit around. Uh, they were nice, but they didn't do anything. And uh, so my dad had promised his father, that if anything happened to his father, that he would take care of his sister. So he invited her to live at our house along with my mother's mother, and then my sister, and then me. And then one of my sister's girlfriend's parents, he was in the oil business, um, he used to travel a lot and lived in Europe a lot. So they they used to live in Europe most of the time, and so we invited his, their daughter Trudy to live with us also. So there was another <laughs> another girl in the house. So anyway, mom would work, and she never in my lifetime do I ever remember her complaining about anything. She just did everything, and uh, she was well. Of course, everybody loves her mom, but she was an extraordinary woman. I never saw her, as I told Mom, I never saw her angry. I never saw her yell at anybody. All she ever did was take care of people. And she was a fun-loving, blue-eyed, lovely lady. She was a sweetheart. She was a sweetheart, I remember. Yeah, but she moved uh, moved to Arizona because she couldn't she couldn't come to Vermont. It was too slippery up there for her. She broke her leg already once, and so she said, "No, I think uh, if I have to live with any of you kids, I'll live nearby your sister who lived in Arizona." So she went and bought a condo out there, and that's where she died. 
She did. She had some of the funniest stories because she actually ended up having a gentleman friend, and his name was, I only called him Uncle Bill. Uh-huh. And and they used to travel. Bill oh, would yeah, take Bill Grandma was... to great trips. Oh, yeah. All through Europe, Scandinavia. Uh, I can't remember they went to the Philippines. They they did a lot of traveling. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was a great guy. He was well, a that was guy. nice that he was able to take care of her uh, after you because I know you did a lot. So, Pop, um, one thing, I mean, you're 92 now, and... And we're going to do a lightning round because I wanted to go back to, you know, you probably never real, never expected to live past 50. So that, a lot of things that you did and, and thought about um, because of your pop dying early uh, might have limited you to, to many things. But let's do a lightning round here. This is a little different. I didn't do this with mom. And these are short questions, short answers. And then we'll get more into the stories, okay? Mm-hmm. So... Your favorite movie? My favorite? Oh, movie. Oh, shoot. Well, we don't go to movies much anymore. I I don't know. I, I used to like, um, oh, Death Wish. <laughs> <laughs> Death Wish. I watched several of the Death Wish movies with that crazy-looking guy. Um, what was his name? I don't know. Oh, I have to look that one up. Death Wish, yeah, he's a, he's a guy. He's the guy who lived uh, out in South Woodstock later on. Oh, yeah, and Lou was on an airplane with him. Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson, yeah. He made several movies, and in each case, there were movies where he were involved guns, okay. and his wife his wife had been brutally murdered, and uh, in the movie, the movie is all about how he. He went and went into all kinds of disguised things and went into the cities and mingled with these mobsters and so forth. Okay. So he found all the ones who had had killed his wife, and he killed them all. Okay. Well, this is our lightning round. We'll go look up. We'll we'll watch Death Wish together. That was much lightning. (laughs) (laughs) What are your favorite colors? Blue. Blue. Okay. Your favorite place to visit? Well, I was thinking about that the other night. Countries-wise, I, I love I love Switzerland and Austria. Okay. And and New Zealand. Yeah, I know. I think New yeah. Zealand is where you wanted to move the whole family, but that's just too far to go. <laughs> where was yeah. the favorite place you've lived of all the homes? Uh, probably the one over on uh, Lake Tarpon, across from Innisbrook, the Winchester Landing Forest. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was nice. We had the two dogs, and we had a, our own little, little pond within our own alligator. And then just a couple hundred yards down the road was our had our little boat in a big lake. Okay. And then we were only five minutes away from the golf course, and uh, I was retired by then. So okay. It, uh, it was a great place. What's your favorite golf course? Oh, dear. Well... This is tough for a golfer. Yeah, I've been to so many. Um, my favorite golf course. Uh, dude, that's hard to say, hon. Okay. There's so many in Scotland, but most Scottish golf courses are pretty much the same. And uh, so I, I would, I love any of those. And fortunately, I've been there a couple of times. And you've had what eight hole in ones? Yeah, eight hole in ones. 
Which was your most favorite or most fun to think about? Uh, well, let's see. I mean, they're exciting anyway, but to have eight of them, there's got to be one that might have stood out. Oh, well, probably the first one. The first one was on the 13th hole at uh, Woodstock, and I was playing with my buddies, Dr. Roberts and Wendell Barwood. And uh, it's funny, I, I remember that hole because I can even remember the ball that I used and the iron that I hit. And for those who are golfers, to think of those, remember those things for over 60 years is pretty unusual. You have the most incredible memory as far as golf goes, and I think that was in your book, Swing yeah. and Sway with Dr. J. Yeah, uh huh. That, yeah. got any golfers listening, contact us, because that book is amazing. He, he remembers everything, where me, I try to forget my golf game as soon <laughs> as I walk off the green. Oh, yeah. I, I I can remember almost every every shot I ever had. It was of any importance, and uh, I said sometimes you remember some of the things that I said. Unbelievable, you know, Dad. It is crazy, and yet, yet some days I can't remember where I put my glasses. <laughs> what's your favorite? <laughs> what's your favorite animal? Uh, well, my favorite animal I think would be a Siberian tiger, okay. besides golden retrievers. I love golden retrievers to death, but as far as a wild animal goes, I think uh, big Siberian tigers are just so gorgeous. And I know you love golden retrievers. You also wrote a book about golden retrievers called My 50 Golden Years, which was, I think, a book that when we start talking about genealogy years ago, I wanted you to write a book about the family. I said, Dad, just write a book. We got so much information about the Butts family. And he ended up writing a book about the dogs, but threw in the family history. Uh, so, which, can you have a favorite, it's like asking who your favorite child is. Can you have a favorite pet of all the Goldens? Who was your favorite? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <clears throat> Our last two Goldens were twins, <clears throat> Angel, Princess, Angel, Princess, and Prince. The male. They were they were twins, brother and sister, and uh, <clears throat> they were the last ones that we had. And Angel was such a sweet dog. Of course, all golden retrievers are sweet, but I mean, she just used to love to. I'd sit on a sofa, and she just loved to get up and sit next to me and lean on me, and start making all these little noises. <laughs> you know, just very faint. But it was just I just loved her to death. And all the we had 10 dogs. Of all the dogs that we had to put away, she's the only one that caused me to cry some. And I'm, I'm not a person who cries very much and uh, never did. And that, that really bothers me to think that she died when she was only half age she should have been normally. She died at age six. And she also died from melanoma, which is the one thing that nearly killed me 10, 15, 15 years ago. So, You've survived how many melanomas? Eight? Uh, yeah, eight. Seven. Same number of whole ones. Dang, Dad. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. In fact, I had so many of them that the last one of the doctors that took off the one of them uh, asked me if I would mind speaking to the hospital that he uh, worked at. If I would, they have a little uh, thing where they have discussions about different things and invite doctors to talk. 
invited, he invited me to talk about uh, being a melanoma survivor, which I, I had done that several times. And then even in my book, even in the dog book, I devoted a chapter to uh, melanomas and what to be careful of with melanomas and so forth. Well, on the melanoma, there's something, and actually we've just had that in the family. One of our extended family members had it, um, just lost an eye due to yep. melanoma. So when you, I don't recall when you got your first, and I'm thinking about this only because we've had, I have so many pictures of you and mom traveling around the world um, out in the sun. And I recall as a little girl, you would be out in the sun. Now, we grew up in Vermont, so the period of time we were out in the sun was short, but you were always so dark in the summer. You know, it's like yeah. you, you were almost black-skinned in the summer. And um, so that's come back literally to bite you. So yeah, how, did, how did you get your, how did they find the first one? The first melanoma I had was after I had retired, because I retired early. I was 57. But anyway, um, I went out, and we were living over in Florida on the, on the Gulf. And I just went in for my first ever, as I recall, skin check, because we just didn't do skin checks in those days. And I went over there, and, and the guy said, okay, you've got a... A squamous cell, a basal cell, and a melanoma. Well, it, it didn't strike me at the time that that's pretty unusual. The first thing I thought about was this guy's just trying to make a lot of money off of me. But anyway, they he said he took off a, a melanoma on my back. Well, of course, it was right in the middle of my back, and there was no way that I could see it. Uh, so I had to take his word for it. It couldn't have been too big. But that's the first melanoma that I'd ever had. Now, I think, I can't recall exactly the sequence, but John had, a, our son John, oldest son, uh, had a melanoma uh, up in Vermont when he was up there as a, as a state police lifeguard. Mm -hmm. And he had a melanoma removed on his neck, but it had been like a mole. So it had been there for years. It just changed, which is what melanomas can do. So anyway, that was the first one in the family. But then I had this one. And then I think the next one that I had was the one I had up at Mayo Clinic where Mom had noticed this thing on my arm. And uh, I, I more or less looked around and kept an eye out for unusual skin lesions. But I hadn't noticed this one in particular because I've got so many bruises and other things. Um, not from your mom. And um, so anyway, I, I went to the Mayo Clinic at the time, which we were going to in Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, went in there and they they looked at it and they said, "Yep," and they they gave me a, a exam, and they even went up and uh, took out my lymph nodes in my armpit, which are the first line of defense for things like melanomas. If you have one, it'll spread up your arm to the to the lymph nodes, and the lymph nodes will catch it at least for a while, and if it's there too long, then it spreads to there, and then you're, you don't last for a few months. That's why melanomas can be very quick-acting. You can die from melanoma in, in 60 days, and we've had friends who did exactly that. But anyway, um, we saw it when they were up there, and they, they did this fantastic. The surgery, I must have had 50 stitches in this thing. It was the size of your fingernail. I mean, it wasn't very big, but it went 
what they call 1.98 millimeters depth, and they consider two millimeters the turning point between whether you make it or not. It goes beyond two millimeters deep in your skin, and it'll spread so fast that you don't have a chance. It usually goes to your brain or your lungs. So... Well, I re- I remember that one because my kids were little and I was I was here in Florida, and that was the one time I would I would go drop the kids off at school and go to the beach and I just sat there, probably did a lot of crying, but I sat there and I just watched the water, oh, yeah. you know, coming into the into the shore, um, because I knew that was one of your favorite places too, and uh, yeah. boy that it seemed like yesterday that that we used to do that and honestly you know once you survived that which was wonderful I didn't spend a lot of time at the beach <laughs> not sure yeah. that was good to, well but, it's funny I used to love to be in a sun so much partly because as a teenage kid I had a, you know acne a bit and it bothered me and I used to try on I knew that sunlight was supposed to be good for it I never even thought about skin cancer mm-hmm. and I would lay out in the sun even when I lived in the city any time I had a chance, I would lay out in the sun to study or whatever. It was ridiculous, but I, I did. And in fact, in those days, we used to even buy sun lamps, you know, infrared sunlamps or ultraviolet, ultraviolet sun lamps, and lay under them to get the tan. In fact, one of the girls in my high school class fell asleep under the under the darn thing and ended up with third degree burns. Yeah, that can be a that can be a problem. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, let's move on real quick. When you uh, grandpa died, you went to Penn, and how did you pay for school? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I, I've been thinking about that for the last couple of years. I said, first of all, we had no insurance to speak of, ten thousand dollars, which is not very much. And University of Pennsylvania, of course, is one of the top schools in the world as far as that goes. And it's very expensive. It was expensive in 1950s also, <laughs> but even before that. And uh, I, I worked, I just worked so many different places and jobs, and I never thought about it because it was my normal life. I started working on, when I was uh, 17. I worked at a grocery store for a whole year before I went to college. But anyway, um, I don't know, Deb. I, I I did get a small scholarship from uh, the Atlantic Refining Oil Company, but that was about all. And then the other thing, which was almost the thing that made a difference, was when I was in high school. I was I was an average student. I, I just played so much athletics, so I guess I took too much time with that. But anyway, uh, I would not be a great. I was not a great student. I don't know, but I didn't spend enough time with it, I guess. But anyway, I used to be, when I took tests, I took a test for the Navy, U.S. Navy, ROTC. Mm-hmm. They gave a test at all the high schools. And our high school was a big one. We had 2,000 kids in our high school. And I took tests there. And uh, I, and surprisingly, my brother-in-law-to-be, he and I both got full scholarships in the Navy ROTC and a full scholarship meant that you you could go to any college, any place, and you get four years of tuition plus so much money a month and so forth. And all you had to do was serve four years in the Navy after you got out of school, 
which was a fantastic deal. But when I was a 12-year-old, I had injured my eye playing baseball. I got hit right in the eye with a ball. And I had a scar, tore my retina, I had a scar on it. Scar healed, but it never went away. And it's still there. Been there since uh, I was 12 years old. And so anyway, um, I went in to have a check physical for my scholarship at the Navy Yard in Philadelphia. And the guy says, uh, what's this on your eye? I said, that's where I got hit by the baseball. And he said, well, you know, it, it's a scar. And you know that. He said, do you mind if I take a picture of it? Because he hadn't seen one like it before. I said, yeah. So anyway, then we're, we're done that. And he looked at me and he says, I'm sorry, son. He says, but because of that, you, you cannot qualify for the scholarship. Mm-hmm. So there, one little crazy incident at the grade school playground cost me a fortune. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know. I had I had jobs forever, and I used to do a lot of photography work, and I'd sell pictures to people and do weddings and stuff like that. And I sold almost everything I owned, as I said, my guns, my stamp collections, anything I had that was any value at all. But it's okay. I I missed them at the time, but didn't take any of it. Well, so anyway, it was, I, I don't know how I paid for it otherwise. That's uh, interesting. I, yeah, I had a little little idea that perhaps my dad's brother, who Uncle Al, who was a, a physician, and uh, he had no children. And he was like a second father to me in many ways. And uh, it's possible, although I never found out if he did anything, whether he helped my mom pay for that or not. Okay. Because there's no way I could have made that much money. You know, four years at the University of Pennsylvania has got to be millions of dollars. It's just, it's just I'm not that much but in those days. But certainly several hundred thousand dollars at least. And how did I do it? I don't know, but I, I walked away from my last graduation. I didn't know an echo. And I went right into the Air Force because I didn't amazing. have any money. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> While you were growing up, Dad, you said you mentioned earlier that you loved sports. What were your favorite sports and the ones that you played? Yeah, well, sports is funny. I used to feel like, as far as sports go, I wasn't the best, particularly in any one sport, better than anybody else. But I could compete with anybody in any sport. didn't matter what it was. But basketball, I played a lot of basketball. I played basketball until I was 45 years old competitively. And um, then, of course, soccer I played since I was in grade school. And I played for Penn on the soccer team. But basketball is one of my favorites. And I didn't get into golf and tennis until I was after college. And uh, I was pretty pretty active in both of those. And if I do say so myself, I did pretty well with both of those. Well, and uh, being slightly competitive is a... Is, uh... I just lost the word for it, but you're not slightly competitive. You, as the rest of the family, are very competitive. <laughs> Everything, <laughs> even ping yeah. pong. Um, all right, so Pop, the quick question: What was the most trouble you've ever gotten into? Most trouble. <laughs> well, seems ridiculous, but I, I haven't been in much trouble. But uh, <laughs> the only thing I did do, and I still recall 
when I was a kid, we had a neighbor who was kind of nasty, an old couple, cranky old people lived two houses away. And uh, one time when it was, what do they call it, a Halloween? Mm-hmm. It was trick-or-treat trick night. Uh, I and another kid went up to their house after dark. And this is this is during the Second World War. And we went up after dark, and we took chalk, and we, we drew swastikas on the on the people's front steps. <laughs> and they, they, they weren't Jewish or anything. And so the swastika didn't have any great significance to me, necessarily. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> Did you get in trouble? Day, yeah, the next day, a, a big policeman arrives at my door at the house... And, of course, I'd never seen a policeman before. <laughs> He's not up close. He said, uh, son, do you, do you know anything about these markings and so forth up the street and blah, blah, blah? And uh, I said, uh, yes, I do. <laughs> he said, you did that? And I said, yes, sir. So anyway, he said, okay. He said, I just want to know if you had done it. I said, I want you to get up there right now and clean them up. <laughs> so off I went and I scrubbed them all off the people's house and that was the end of that. I don't remember anything else, son. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. Well, one thing I regret of, of everything about my, my pop was that he never, unfortunately, lived long enough. If he had lived another six months, he would have met your mom, but he never did. And he also would have uh, never did uh, know how you guys succeeded in your lives as you have. Uh, He would be so proud of of all four of your kids and, of course, mom. uh, But that never happened. It didn't didn't happen in person, but I I know he knows it. Did he ever express to you, though, how proud he was of you? Or was he just quiet? No, I don't think so. He was very quiet. Yeah, we we didn't talk a lot. That's another thing that bothered me over the years later. I said, you know, I never sat down with my dad and talked about much. He he was just so quiet. And uh, even whenever we did things, it was like you go fishing. Well, we'd go fishing. You don't talk that much if you're mm-hmm. 100 yards apart in the ocean. And when I was out shooting, we were too busy shooting to talk, and uh, he used to he used to read voraciously. He he would read a book a week, and uh, so he was constantly taking up his time with that. And of course, I was in school most of the time. He's going to work, so it was kind of sad, but it just didn't happen. Okay, well, it was a different time back then. Oh yes, it was. What was your relationship like with Grandma? Not my mom, but your mother. Well, my relationship, oh, yeah. it was it was good. She, um, of course, I lived at I lived at home all through all those years of school, and I was I was eight years of traveling down to the city every every day. Which is but when business. you were when you were little, did she did she bake? Did she cook? Did you uh, have yeah, favorite oh, she's cake? Fantastic, fantastic baker. Well, of course, she was her her mom was was Scotch English, and they were very much into. Uh, tea times and such as that. So we always had the four o'clock tea uh, at which uh, she would bake and my grandmother would too. 
And so we always had cakes and pies and all kinds of pastries. She was a little chunky. <laughs> she used to say, I'm pleasing, pleasingly plump, but I'm trying to please everybody. <laughs> and that was one of her favorite little sayings. But uh, she was still a very pretty lady, but she was a little, a little heavy. Did but, you have uh, a favorite uh, cake or pastry that Grandma would make? Yeah, well, the, she, used to, she used to love to make pineapple upside-down cakes, which I enjoyed. But I think the favorite was the, uh, the devil's food chocolate cake uh, with vanilla icing that I always had for birthday. And she also made a coconut, a coconut icy cake, which was good. But now she baked constantly, and then when she was working, she didn't have time to bake. So she there's a a uh, bakery not far from where she worked, and every night she'd come home, and uh, she would have brought home some cinnamon buns, chocolate eclairs, brownies, you name it. There's always something there. In fact, it's funny. It's one of the reasons that I had so much trouble with my teeth as a youngster. <laughs> I used to eat so much sugar. I chewed gum all the time, which in those days was all sugar. And then I had all these baked goods all the time and cookies and candy, and this, and I they couldn't hide a bar of candy from the house anywhere that I couldn't find. And so when I was in college, uh, I had some unbelievably bad problems with decays. Never lost a tooth, but I had some really big cavities, mainly because of the sugar. And then to think that I became a dentist later on. That was my question. How did you get into dentistry after that history? Well, partly because this old dentist that I used to go to as a kid was so good. And he never took a tooth out of me, even though the ones that had the, needed the root canals when I was 18 and 19 uh, certainly could have been removed. Lots of dentists, but I never removed them. But he never, never did anything like that. And um, the other thing was I had intended to go, I had hoped to go to medical school because my grandfather, of course, having been an MD and also my father's brother were leading me towards medical school. I always, that's all I ever figured I would do. And then I go and apply to, after having had all these great test results for the Navy, I go and apply for a pen to get the into pen and they turned me down. I said, how could they do that? <laughs> and I only applied to two schools, Lafayette, which I wanted to go to because it was in Pennsylvania, was a small school, very good reputation, and it had not a lot of students. And therefore I thought, well, I can, I can probably at least play on a couple teams because it's small, whereas University of Pennsylvania, to play on their teams was a lot harder because there's so many kids there. I played anyway, but anyway, that was um, that was one of the things that happened, and uh, I still have all those teeth. <laughs> and you went on uh, after Penn. You went into the Air Force and went up to Burlington, Vermont, where John and I were born. But yep. tell me your. <laughs> I'm thinking of one particular story in your book, My Fifty Golden Years, of yeah. you uh, you and the dynamite. Can you just briefly tell? A story about the dynamite. Uh, yeah. Well, I had this. We had to used to give these exams for the incoming Air Force kids, and uh, 
part of the exam was a dental exam. So this one kid comes in, and he's from Texas, and very shy, probably about 18, 19 years old. And I, I'd always been a practical joker, anyway, in my whole life, and still am, I guess. And so I, uh, I got him in the office, and I had a, an assistant who was a tech sergeant male, because they didn't have any females working in those days for the doctors. So anyway, male. And his name was John. And this kid came in, and I'm examining his teeth, and I look at this one tooth, and I was kidding, and here's John recording all these things I'm writing down. I said, John, I said, I, I think this tooth up here looks pretty bad. Uh, I think we may have to take it out. And he says, oh, yes, sir. So anyway, I we had stuff called gutta percha. Gutta percha is a thermal sensitive thing you heat it up and it, it gets like putty and you can mold it around and then it sets hard used to be used and still is in some cases for temporary fillings if you had to if you had to take a decay out of a tooth and temporarily put a filling in for whatever reason because you couldn't put a permanent filling in you would take the gutta percha heat it up and just put it into the hole and it was set hard hard but hard not so hard you couldn't get it out easily just pull it out. But it stayed in well. It was durable. So anyway, it looks like a little candle, birthday candle. Mm-hmm. So I took that and I showed it to the guy. Of course, it had a, has a candle. has a little fuse on it. So I put that up inside his cheek with a cotton roll to hold it up there, make sure he, see, he saw it, you know. And here's this little stick of dynamite, so it looked like. And I said to John, I said, you know, I think this, this is going to be a tough one. I think we may have to blow this out. So the kid's looking at me, you know, with this crazy look on his face. I said, what, are you kidding? <laughs> so anyway, we let the, put the thing in his cheek and the, the uh, dental floss. I used dental floss as a fuse. It didn't have anything on it. So I put the dental floss onto the end of the little candle so it looked like a fuse on a stick of dynamite. Ran it down his cheek. And proceeded to ask John for a match. Well, Jesus crackers, poor kid almost almost croaked on me right there. I said, I, I, I as I think back on it now, I really shouldn't have done that. <laughs> you think? <laughs> and then, of course, as soon as he saw what we were doing, he broke out in laughter also. And I said, well, I guess I shouldn't do things like that. But it, it was it was harmless. <laughs> I wasn't really going to blow up anything. I don't think you could ever get away with that today, but it, that, that just that story just cracks me up every time I read it. And when I read the book, I, obviously I know you well, so I can hear you telling the stories. And that's the value of writing a book uh, is yeah. if you know family can hear you through those words, um, which is so much fun. And it, oh my gosh, that just makes me laugh. So yeah. you spent a lot of your well, for what four years in the Air Force, active duty, and then we moved down to Woodstock and and the. Live no, there, but two, year, two years Air Force. Yeah, <clears throat> when I was in college, I had done five years in the Army Reserve. Okay, but no, only two years in the Air Force, and then uh, in some ways, I regret that I got out. But uh, because our kids have all done so well in the military, but I wanted to, I wanted to make some money. I had no money. Mm. In fact, when I was in the Air Force as a captain, I was only making eleven thousand dollars a year mm. income which in 1956 was not much money. And I didn't have any money left over from school. And mom had a car when I married her, so we had a car. And that's all we had. 
It wasn't so much I, because I found out from mom a couple of weeks ago that your very first house in Woodstock was how much? Thirteen thousand. Thirteen thousand for a lovely two-story house with an acre of land and a barn. Yeah. Can you believe? Your, your whole year's salary would have couldn't even have paid for the house. Oh yeah. Yep, That's and then shortly after that, we had we had two kids already. Then next, pretty soon we had two more. So we decided we better move. So I I designed a house and we bought some land and we built a house. And that and was, that, that, that was, was beautiful. Going back was, going back to when you were young for a minute though, Dad. Um, I just started thinking about you know you and Mom were very active in in the congregational church in Woodstock. But did you go to church as a child? Yes. Well, as a very young child, we went to the, uh, let's see now, and I don't think, we didn't go in the city, but when we moved to the suburbs, we went to the Lutheran church, because they were German heritage, so Lutherans are mostly German. And so uh, I went to a small Lutheran church there, which was fine, and uh, I was such a basketball nut that... uh, our little German or Lutheran church didn't have enough boys there to have a basketball team, but the local Methodist church up the street had, was much bigger and had a basketball team. So I decided, well, maybe I you know a church is a church. I might as well go to a church with a basketball team. So I did, and that's where I met your mom. <laughs> <laughs> what so mom didn't say, though, huh? mom didn't say on her show, uh, how she met you through her friend, but yeah, Sue, Sue Hanstein, Sue Hilton. Yeah. Um, but weren't you dating Sue before Mom? Could throw you under the bus. No, no, no. no you I didn't? never dated her. Okay. No, she was just one of the girls in our little church group. Okay. I mean, I wouldn't have minded. She was very pretty and also very <laughs> athletic. So it, uh, the only trouble with her was her father was a superintendent of schools. And we were scared to death of him. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Sue. <laughs> oh, she's she's sweet. She's still uh, she's still living up in Woodstock today. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Her husband died some years ago. Yeah. He was another Pennsylvania Dutch guy, which is kind of fun. So we yeah, got along well. Got okay. Along well. Um, one other thing you mentioned uh, sports, and you've been involved in sports all your life. Uh, you said something to me about the Senior Olympics, and I didn't realize that you were so involved in this. How did you get involved in the Senior Olympics, and what were your sports? Well, when I said, when I was in school, in high, in high school, I used to throw. I used to always love to throw things, and I was pretty good at throwing anything, baseballs or you name it. So anyway, I threw the discus and the javelin in high school, track team, and then I always enjoyed that. I wasn't I wasn't big enough or strong enough to throw shot puts. Shot puts are they're very heavy. They're 12 pounds in those days, uh, high school, and 16 pounds when you're in college. And I was I was pretty strong, but I was only 160 pounds, 165 pounds, and six foot two tall. And surprisingly, I played center for a lot of basketball teams in those days, which at that size is pretty unusual. But there weren't that many tall kids around. And so, um, anyway, that was the one thing that I did do and enjoyed. But uh, what was back to the question again? Now, what how did, did you I get thought? involved in Senior Olympics? Oh, yeah, okay. So, 
uh, I saw this thing in a newspaper, and I, I knew I always had loved track and field. I, I couldn't run worth a damn. All my, all my buddies were faster than I was, but I was still a good basketball player because I, I could jump. And anyway, um, I, I saw this advertisement in the sports section of the Tampa paper about the Senior Sports Olympics. Now, the Florida Florida Sports, uh, whatever they call it, the uh, Senior Olympics was made up of a, each uh, county in the state would have their own Olympics. And we lived in Tampa, Camp Tampa, um, Tampa, yeah. You were in Pinellas County. Tampa County, Pinellas County. And that's where St. Pete was. St. Petersburg, pretty big city. So anyway, uh, I decided to go to that one. And it was stretched out over a period of about two months. They had everything. You could be anything from bowling to basketball, shooting to soccer to uh, track and field to golf to tennis. To, you name the sport, they were all in there. And I fear, well... You know, I'm I'm pretty good at most all those things, and not superb, but I'm better than most people. So I said, why don't I just try it? So I decided to do that. And so when I went to practice the javelin, I used to have a javelin, but they break, and they're expensive. And so I took the <laughs> some curtain rods that we had in the house, and they were the closest thing I had to a metal pole. I would go out in the golf course and throw it out in the golf course back and forth. And then to take a place of shot puts, I just pick up some big rocks and throw the rocks. And then for a discus to practice that, I had a, a weight from a weightlifting outfit. You know, they go on a barbell. Mm-hmm. They're, they're similar shape to discus. And I'd throw that out in the, on the golf course. So anyway, I went down to this thing on these different occasions. Whether I went to a golf course first, and they break it up so that you d- are divided into five-year segments. So you can you can be eligible from seventy-eight say to eighty-three or whatever, five years, and all the way through the all the way up to a hundred. <clears throat> so I, I think I was in the 70, 78 to eighty-three or something bracket. Anyway, long story short, I ended up I won I won thirteen medals. <laughs> About half of them were gold medals. One of them was the golf tournament. I won the golf tournament, which I kind of expected I would because I was, for my age, I was pretty good. So anyway, uh, I remember I shot eighty-one in that. Then I won the putting contest. Then I won the driving contest. Then I won the chipping contest, and then uh, won a baseball contest. Anyway, I had all this stuff. <laughs> So I had all the, and the medals were neat. They were made in China, but they were pretty neat. They looked just like Olympic medals. They had red, white, and blue little long ribbons attached to them. They were about size of a bigger than a half dollar. And they they had on the whatever sport it was that you won. And oh, then, cool. Then what happened after that was I went and uh, I did win the, the uh, discus uh, shot put, and there was a 35-pound weight throw. Now, I had never seen a 35-pound weight throw, but that's pretty heavy. So it's got a little chain attached to it. You swing around and throw it. So yeah, I won that. I found out later that they had a combination prize for the weight and the discus and something else. And so since I won that, that may be eligible to play in the state. So I, I could have gone from the the county championship to the state championship. But when I saw some of the guys who were at that championship, 
that I was in. I said, you know, I don't think I can beat those guys. I said, I've already had a lot of fun, and I, I've done okay, so why, why should I waste time <laughs> doing anything that I knew I probably couldn't win at? But it was fun. Then I gave all the, half the medals. I still have some of the medals. Gave the rest of them to the grandchildren. They thought they were pretty fun. Yeah, I'm sure they had a great time with that. Yeah. How cool. Well, Mr. Competitive, I'm surprised that you gave up, Dad, gave up so easy looking at those other guys because sometimes you can surprise people. You know, they may oh, look, yeah. well, they I, may look I almost, good. I almost did it last year. There you go. But, uh, hey, did you ever shoot your age in golf? Oh, yeah. What What when was, was the youngest age? 75. 75? When I was 75, I shot a 75. Yep, and then when I was eighty, when I was eighty, I let's see, I was eighty-four. I shot an eighty, and that's four underage. Not many that's, people can shoot underage. That's a big deal, especially the younger you are. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty unusual. Most most ninety-nine percent of all golfers will never shoot their age. Okay. Yeah, it's it's just too too hard to do. One more thing I want to talk about, um, and this is your trains. You love your trains. Yep. Where, when did you start? Oh, I guess with a silly way to put it, what got you interested in trains? Yeah, okay. Well, my mom's father. They lived in the city. Uh, Grandpa Bauer. He uh, he worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad, and uh, he used to always every year to give me the Pennsylvania Railroad calendar which is a kind of a famous calendar as calendars go it's always different trains pictures of trains and about a mile away from the house where they lived was a big train yard and we used to walk of course at that time it looked felt like it was 10 miles but we would walk when i was probably eh, maybe 12 years old he would take me on a walk and we'd go up to the closest railroad area outside of Philadelphia, and there would be tracks up there. There would be as far as you could see, and there would be trains coming along constantly. And some of the trains would have over 100 cars. I mean, they were really long trains, and I would count the cars and all that stuff. So I, I always fell in love with trains. And then, of course, as a kid, we always had a train at Christmas time, and that would just come out at Christmas. I didn't play with it any other time. And then when I got to college, uh, I somehow, I don't know, I didn't have anybody else doing it, but we had a nice house with a, with a basement, in it, and there was plenty of room to, to build a train set. So I, I built one in a basement. In fact, I built it so big that when we moved from that house, I couldn't get it out. <laughs> it was all plaster. I made all these plaster mountains, so they weighed a ton. And so I took the trains up, but I had to leave all the mountains and all the other platform which is fun so then each house that we moved to over the years later i would set them up and if i had room and uh finally um, well we started getting well what would i say we started closing down the sizes of our houses <laughs> and the original train set that i had was really quite big you know, like 10 feet by 15 feet or something. Well, that's that's a, that's a whole room. So I didn't have any of that kind of space in the, in the new houses except for that one that we had, the one over the lake. 
but um, I just didn't have room for them, so I, I started to cut back on them and make them smaller, the layouts. And they even went to the little tiny trains, which they have what they call Z-gauge, Z as in zebra. And the engines for them are only about an inch and a half long, even though they cost today $300. <laughs> but anyway, I set that up there. And then I wasn't messing with it very much. And then along came all the grandchildren. So I said, well, I said, I'll just give these trains to the grandkids and they'll have fun using them. Well, unfortunately, none of them were very interested, but they weren't interested at all. So <laughs> they ended up in boxes in Texas at Brad's house. And uh, I went to them one day because one of my neighbors, where we now presently live in Florida, one of my neighbors had a few trains. And uh, it's an old man's sport now. It used to be different. Of course, in, in my day, when I kids were young, they didn't have any of these uh, computer games and all the other jazz. So we had other things to do, and but in those days we used to have to build things ourselves, build our own games, build this, build that, and use your own mind and so forth, and not buy all this highfalutin stuff. And so anyway, uh, I decided to get back into the trains, and I still had the ones at Brad's house. So I said, "Kids using them? Nope." Okay, I said, "Okay, how about sending them back to me?" <laughs> Which they did. And then I set them up here in Florida, and now I have this nice setup, and I, I haven't had time recently to, uh, with the COVID and all the other stuff happening, uh, it just I just haven't had time to work on it. But, but your uh, train set is extraordinary now because you're obviously very proud of, of the military boys, uh, all the grandkids, but yeah. the boys and the, the, the pilots right now. Can you explain what you made uh, to honor oh, yeah. the kids that are in the military? Yeah, we have, uh, I got one, one military train, that is, it's a U.S. Army train, it's a, it's a diesel, and then it's a, a caboose, Every, everything has the military insignias on it, and it has a tank on one of the cars, and it has an artillery giant cannon on another one, and so forth, and so I decided my train set was big enough at four, at, well, so 12 by 6, pretty big platform, uh, I divide it into two sections. One section is, is a kind of an Army Air Force combination base. And so I have the train for the Army and I run that around. And then since we have the other boys, Charlie, your son, and uh, Chris, your son, and Jim's son, uh, Daniel, yeah. are all pilots and are flying helicopters and other things. So I said, well, I think I'll, I'll get the models that they make that correspond to the same scale as the trains and build them and have them and make a small airport with the kids' planes that are, my kids are flying or grandchildren. And then I made some scenery in which I have pictures of the planes actually flying over the mountains uh, in Vermont, which is kind of cool. And uh, so that that's kind of fun. And now I finally found out that one of the grandsons finally has expressed interest in the trains. <laughs> so he said he, he would like to have them eventually. I said, okay, no problem. Well, that's fun. It's extraordinary to me, though, how you've created the scenery uh, by building those little mountain things and the bridges, and it's so yeah. intricate. And even to the point where you use the 
the little plastic pieces that you know most of us would throw out with the model airplanes, the pieces uh -huh. that would keep the plane pieces together. You made some really creative radar and and different things. How, oh, yeah. how did you come up with that stuff, Dad? Well, I guess I did that as a kid. I used to build things out of. I used to have cardboard, and my father, when my father had his shirts done at the laundry, they always came back pressed and so forth. But they always had a, a stiff piece of cardboard inside to keep the shirt from wrinkling. Mm -hmm. And that was that was great material for for building. So I used to build little jeeps, and little trucks, and other things. When I was very uh, during the Second World War, I had one one cousin who was an Air Force. Uh, U.S. Army Air Force pilot, who was my hero. He he flew a he bomb. He flew his bomber over Italy, uh, and was wounded. Actually, as a pilot, he was he was wounded by a bullet. Came straight through the bottom of his plane. But anyway, he, he won the air the Distinguished Cross and so forth. So anyway, he was my boyhood hero. And uh, so anyway, I always used to love to build little games. In those days. You know, I didn't have a lot of money to spend on these silly computerized type games, so I used to make games out of cardboard and put holes, little holes in them, like these things you roll, you roll a ball up a thing at the carnival, roll a ball up a up a ramp into a hole, and you get a score. Mm -hmm. Well, I used to build those out of cardboard and just roll marbles up these until they fell through the holes. I mean, stuff stuff like that, and uh, I just. I just like to build stuff, and it's always fun to figure out how to do it, what it would look like. And I did the same with our house. I built I built a house from a drawing that I made, and went from there. So I you know, I just have have that kind of mind. I guess I'd like to figure out how things can be made, even if you don't have much to make them with. Well, we have this running joke now about the clampets, and you know you can't go past you can't go past a dumpster without wanting to dive into it. No, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I still do. <laughs> well, it's amazing what people throw away. I mean, I just can't imagine when people change their house and, and do reconstruction, they throw away some of the most valuable stuff. They don't think it is, but uh, of course the guys who are building the thing they don't give a damn because they're they're going to make money no matter what. But people don't realize sometimes what to throw it away, and you watch these programs on television where they destroy and redo houses. And these go to a sledgehammer, and they have a big thrill of some some little blonde girl coming up with a sledgehammer and knocking a wall down. I said, you know, that wall you just knocked down has a lot of good wood in it. <laughs> and you just take a few minutes to take it apart, and you've got enough wood to build something. No, no, they throw it in the dumpster. That's what people do these days. But that's how things have changed. That's a true statement, Dad. And uh, yeah, you have a lot of you have a lot of shelves that have been built from dumpster <laughs> diving, which yeah. just makes me laugh. Yeah, oh, I always will. Even when I drive around the neighborhood on, on Monday morning after people have put stuff out to be picked up by the trucks and I see this stuff I said man look what they're throwing away are they crazy <laughs> we're not letting no, you bring any more wood in the house no I'll find a use for all right so I've, I've kept you on for quite a long time but this is really fun and I there are things that I want to know about you're working for me now I mean you've been retired yep. since you were 57 yep I, 
that was young to retire. So why did yeah. you decide to retire so young? Well, because my dad had died so early. You know, it, not just because he died young didn't mean I was going to die young, but the chances are good if your father dies young that you're probably going to die young also. But because of genes and all the other things. But dad's death was unusual in that his coronary artery, the artery that feeds the blood to your heart, was clogged. And today they would know that. They could find it out with testing. In 1950, even though his father was a doctor and his brother was a doctor, they had no clue. He went in for a simple operation. They had a prostate problem, minor. Went in for that, and then his artery was clogged and went to his heart. So he had a heart attack after the surgery. A week after the surgery he was done, he was still in the hospital. And I went in to visit him one day, and he was dead. Mm. And it was such a shock. And uh, so anyway, because, you know, we we never expected he would die from that. And my grandfather, being a doctor, he only lasted another year. It just killed him. Really he died did. of a broken heart. Yeah, he did. He did. His oldest son. Yeah, it was very sad for him. And uh, he had already lost his wife when she was only 30. So, I mean, he had... A tough life in some some ways, but he was still a wonderful person. So wonderful you retired. Doctor. How did you keep busy after you retired from the office? Well, I was still we lived on a golf course at that time, so I was playing golf a few times a week, and uh, I was messing around with the stock market, making some stupid mistakes, <laughs> which <laughs> I learned the hard way, and uh, that was that was fun. Sometimes sometimes I won, but most times I didn't. And um, I don't know. I, I did have the trains to play with some, not not in all the houses, but when the, the houses got a little bigger than the condo, we were had trains. And uh, I don't know. I, I uh, never seemed to feel like I had nothing to do. That's true. And you were living in Innisbrook at the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we moved to this work in 1979, and I, I had retired. I, I was still working, actually, and uh, we used to go, I used to go back and forth. I'd fly up to Boston from Tampa and uh, work for work for two weeks, and then Mom would stay in Florida, and then I would I would come home uh, for four day weekends, and then go back again. I mean, it wasn't so, two hours. It was only only a two hour flight. You've been working with me for the last, I don't know, 14 years, 12, I mean, 12 years. Lou died 12 years ago, so it was a couple of years before that. And I, re <laughs> I recall uh, firing you once and then bringing you back on after some remedial trading, which cracked me up. But uh, what is the best thing about working at age 92? Well... Uh, it's not or would not you prefer financial. to be retired again? <laughs> no, it, it's not the financial part because you've been very good to us, helping us with a lot of things. So we don't need money. So um, I, mom is busy with her gardening and so forth. And I have my trains, but I, I still enjoy. I always have talking with people. Of course, that's part of being a dentist. Uh, all dentists, I think 
down deep, at least I did, uh, have to talk to patients all the time because in most cases, unfortunately, even today, people are fearful of how a dental visit, which is ridiculous because there's so little pain involved anymore. One time it was definitely a problem. Definitely when I first started it was, but that was the 1950s. But uh, now it shouldn't be. But still, people, you know, they don't like needles, they don't like this, they don't like whatever. And uh, I spent a lot of my time just talking to people, convincing them that they weren't going to get hurt, and so forth and so on. And to the point where I used to come home for lunch or just be home with mom for dinner, and she say, and I'd just sit there and watch TV or something. Well, she'd say, or say talk to me. <laughs> I said, honey, I don't want to talk to anybody. I've been talking to people nonstop all day. <laughs> And I'm sick of it, so she understood that. I hadn't thought <laughs> uh, about that. That's true. Oh, yeah. And I, I talk to people. Now I've got you kids to brag about. I've got uh, the military. So lots of times people who are in the military that I talk with, and we have something in common, or sports, or whatever it might be. There's always something we can talk about. And except for a few people whom I can't understand because of language, uh, some accents, I just, I just, my hearing is not that great, as you all know, but I have my hearing aid now and I can hear everything. So and I, I do enjoy talking to all these different people. It's fun. Well, and you're, you're such a great help to me because I know that you love, I mean, what, what I could do it for a sale in about a minute and a half, you might take 30 minutes. But you've built such customer loyalty, and people like to be listened to, and they love to talk. And it just cracks me up because I can see your mind going, you know, when you're talking to a client and you're thinking about saying something funny or doing something, you know, they might not understand it. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, if they understood your sense of humor, you know, they would just be cracking up. So, but I want to publicly thank you for all the work you do on my behalf and for the company, and uh, that has just been extraordinary for me and for the business. Um, yeah, well, so. I, I have to say, if, because of you, and I love you, and uh, I would do anything for you, so even if I didn't like the work, I would still do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do like it. Well, I'm glad you like it, and uh, yeah. and it is fun because I love to, you know, when I write a note to to folks for, with every every package, I sign Debbie and Doctor Jack. It's oh, Debbie yeah. and Doctor Jack, and yeah, uh, right. You're well, it's an fun integral. to talk with people, especially if you're able to help them. Yeah, absolutely, it makes you feel good, makes them feel good, and yeah. and uh, right. it's, the, it's the Debbie and Doctor Jack show. So, Pop, we've gone in almost an hour and a half, and and obviously I could oh. go on forever. This is. Um, going to be sent out to the grandchildren uh, for for them to listen to because I find oh, it yeah. very valuable we like like you didn't have much time to talk with your dad no right. and you don't have his stories anymore uh, life is really busy and we don't sit and listen to family and until oh, it's yeah. too late and then everybody's like well I yeah. wish I had an extra hour with my mom I wish I had an hour oh, with my sure. dad so well, thank you for my hour and a half. I'm sure mom's yeah. sitting in the background. Um, oh, my pleasure. Well, that's why I wrote the books that I did, too, for the same reason. Not well, everybody is before, we go, before we go, just tell me, what are the names of your books? Do you remember? 
And uh, why did you write each one of them? Well, my 50 golden years was written about my my golden retrievers that I had over a 50-year period. The the day that, uh, or the week that my last golden died from a snake bite in Florida, I decided that it had been 50 years since I had my first golden. So why not write a book about the dogs and at the same time include our, what happened with our children growing up because they were there all that time. So that worked out good. Then I'd, I'd had such unbelievable experiences in golf, having done, without bragging about it, but having done some things that will never be done by anybody again in golf, and I have a bunch of them, uh, I, I said, well, why don't I write a book about golf and all the, the things that I have done and seen and heard and so forth about golf. So that was my Swing and Sway with Dr. J book. And then I decided, well, you know, uh, we've lived in some beautiful homes and lived in some nice places and, and so have the children that maybe I should write another book about my life because they, they never know what happened to me as a youngster. So I tried to write a book called No Ifs, Ands, or Buts, B-U-T-Z, and wrote that in there, and that was, that was fun. And... Um, I don't think all the kids have even looked at it, but uh, they will someday. And um, so many people I talked to on the phone, some of the old guys, I said, that have interesting stories. I said, have you ever written any of this stuff down? And they say, no. I said, well, listen, from a, take it from a person who's had experience with that. Take time and write these things down for your grandchildren, or they'll never, ever know it. Never know it. And that's sad. And it takes time, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Then the other book we wrote, I didn't exactly write. It was all about the trip that the, my three sons took me to Scotland. I think that was on my 70, 78th birthday, I think it was. Um, in 2007, was that? That was Something a special like. book for the boys since it was just you guys that went. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. That, that was the last actual book. Now the problem I have is that it's been about 10 years since I wrote the book about myself and the family. I, a lot has happened in those 10 years, and I've really got to get my butt down and, and start to fill in all those uh, spaces. Not that much has happened in golf because I, I don't play now. I could still play, but I, there's not much to golf that I never that I didn't ever do and accomplish so there's nothing to write about you know so anyway but the lifetime does have different things so you you got to upgrade those all the time well that's a true statement and uh, we can actually do it on a video call or we could do it recording and then just get the transcript because for me hearing hearing a voice hearing your voice along with yes. the stories is really important and that's what you miss in writing the book but the book is a great starting point and we encourage everybody to, to do the writing uh, so oh, it, yeah. it's lots of fun so yeah. but dad I'm, I'm gonna give you a break now and uh, and thank you for your hour and a half it's been extraordinary and oh, you know how over? much I love you and, and love mom and um, yeah. this these shows have been for, more for me and oh, yeah. and I appreciate that so I will let you go have your breakfast now. <laughs> yeah, okay. Do I go over time? You can go over time, yeah. And, okay. uh, and I will talk to you in a, in a little bit. But thank you so much for being my guest. 
And, um, okay, honey, I, I enjoyed it. I hope somebody ever hears it. If they do, I hope they'll enjoy it. If they don't, well, this, I, they, they missed it. <laughs> this one's for the family, Pop. Thank you so much. I love you much, and uh, I will talk okay. to you later. Love you too, honey. Thank you. All right, Pop. Have a good one. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. If you are the victim of a scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, Florida, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, make a small donation to help victims around the world receive the help they need. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfotemian products at BenfoComplete.com. Use the special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thank you for being with us today. Go to my website, The Woman Behind the Smile, for additional resources and information. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and enjoy the replays. My books are all available on Amazon.com and Audible, and I encourage you to join us again. Have a great day.